You are listening to another episode of the podcast, Making It Work in Montana. My name is David Boy and I'm your host. I own Black Diamond Mortgage in Whitefish, Montana, and I've been living in Montana since 1996. And over the years, I've met many people that have made it work in Montana in the areas of community life, the outdoors, and in business. And today I have with me somebody who most people consider him to be their friend, who is known all about the Flathead Valley. He's a community influencer for sure. And you may have seen him recently on the HGTV Dream Home episode, which had 135 million entries to win a free home built on the, on the slopes of Big Mountain. It was the most watched TV show for New Year's ever. And a multi-million dollar home was given away that was constructed in just six months. And Bear was on that TV show. Bear is our guest, Andrew Baranowski. Welcome, it's great to have you. Yeah, Dave, thanks. I'm super psyched to be here with you. Now, I've known you for a long time. We met in about 2000. And I wanted to have you on because when I was creating the podcast, Making It Work in Montana, I immediately went through my network of people that are doing great now that they've been living in Montana. And you're one of the guys that rises to the top of that list of people that have made a great life for themselves in Montana. So it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Dave. A lot of people may know you. For example, they may have met you through Malquist Construction, or they may have met you, um, you know, living here in Whitefish. But you didn't always live here in Whitefish, so maybe if you could just introduce yourself to uh, this audience. What happened bringing you to Whitefish, Montana? Well, uh, I grew up in uh, North Carolina in a little town called Banner Elk, which is sort of in that northwestern corner where it meets Virginia and Tennessee. And I had a, a great household, and I think, uh, you know, that, that's the one thing I would probably go back to is my parents gave me enormous amount of confidence, you know, uh, compared to the way I looked, the way I acted, how smart I was or how athletic. They just instilled a lot of confidence, and my father was a career Air Force guy that went off and became an entrepreneur. And he, if I said, Dad, you know, I, I want to be a professional race car driver, we would kind of plan out like, hey, here's, here's how you get there. Here are the things you do. Every year at New Year's, we would write down our goals, whether it was, you know, emotional, physical, spiritual, all these other things, we would write those out. And then the next year, we would come back and read those. And uh, I think that had a lot to do with focusing me. And uh, one of the things uh, that I'll say, I sort of negotiated with my father. My brother was a, he was a 3.98 student in college and he was a, a dual sport. He was an all-American athlete. He uh, went on after that, went into the military. He taught at West Point, got his master's, excelled at school. and. I distinctly remember coming home after my first semester of college and showing my dad my report card, and I was so excited to have straight C's. Like, I was like, <laughs> yes, I didn't get a single D. And my, uh, my father kind of pulls me aside and said, hey, you know, I just want you to know, here's what your brother's been doing. So, um, you know, academically, I don't think school was the best environment for me, but it was a, a great place to learn and I think I was sort of myopic in that I, I looked at North Carolina in the high country and thought, oh, I can kayak here, I can bike here, I can sort of ski here. And it was kind of utopia for me. But 
once I went to college, I experienced a lot of other people in a lot of other places that really opened my eyes, I think, to the world beyond. So I think that had a lot of, those formative years were really strengthening and having a solid family and knowing still to this day if, you know, my dog died, my house burned down, my car blew up, like if everything went south, I feel like I had a foundation that I could go back to in a support network there. So that's probably, I'd say the most formative thing that happened. But after college, I, um, I moved to Austria and I lived there for three years, uh, just outside of Vienna and really, uh, met a lot of great people, went to a kind of a local church, got involved, uh, comically in a folk stance group and just met all kinds of people. And I saw how their relationships really differed. Um, there was a guy in this folk stance group who was a trash man. What's a folk stance? It's like, I guess like, I guess you'd call it like square dancing or clogging, like traditional oh, folk Austrian. Folk stance. Folk stance, yeah. Okay. And the thing that happened is, is I would do my German homework in this park every Wednesday and these guys would dance and I would just kind of watch them in the background and then about two months into it, this girl grabbed me and she said, you're dancing with us. And I said, I, you know, I really can't speak German. She said, we'll teach you. And, uh, you know, she said the bar is the best place to learn German anyway. And then, <laughs> so... But um, they, these guys ended up being great friends. And uh, I think the interesting thing was, as I was saying, this, this garbage man and this mayor's son were both friends. And in some of the first conversations, they would say, hey, how much money do you make? And what do you do with your money? What are your investments? What are your taxes? And they would ask these questions that were stereotypically questions that we don't ever ask. But a lot of their um, relationships weren't socioeconomically based in that, uh, you know, the the lowest level guy, the guy with no money and one of the richest kids in town were, were buddies. And uh, that always impressed me. And I think another thing that impressed me as I think back about it now is whenever you said goodbye to somebody or this group of people, you were never like, hey, I'm out of here, see ya. They would go around and look everybody in the eye and say, hey, goodbye, it was nice being around you. And they would you know, walk around this table of 20 people. And um, I haven't thought about it really till now, but that had a pretty deep impact on me as far as um, recognizing who each individual is and their, and their worth. So I, I lived in Austria for three years and then I came back to the States and I was kind of not a transient lifestyle, but I was guiding in North Carolina, uh, rock climbing, kayaking, you know, canoeing, rafting. And then I was spending my winters in Breckenridge. Um, and I was driving, I was part of a race crew for the first year, which really wasn't that much fun. It, was a little gla it looked glamorous from the outside, but it wasn't. And I saw these guys driving around on snowcats, and I thought, man, that makes a lot of sense. Every day is free, and you're not going out at night. You know, it can alternatively be used as a dating machine, kind of like taking a date to the laundromat. Did you ever take a date up in a snow? Camp? That's how I met my wife. That's how I met Lynn. Well, no, that's not how I met Lynn, but that was our first official date. You, you played that card? <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. Um, but it was great. So we, um, so I did that for about five years between the two, and then um, my wife and I—or not, she wasn't my wife then. Lynn, I met Lynn there in Breckenridge, and we decided to spend a summer hiking the Appalachian Trail. So it's 2,155 miles, and we did it in about four and a half months, which averages right around 20 miles a day or so. And uh, it was an incredible experience being so close, you know, being 50 feet within, beside somebody for, you know, four and a half months. And 
we weren't married yet. We were engaged in the first half of the trail. We just argued, not all the time, <laughs> but it, we decided, hey, we're gonna finish this trail together, but after that, we're done. And then when we hit Pennsylvania, um, it, it it wasn't, you know, bliss all the time, but we really started, I think, having a lot more fun and being open to who the other person was because my wife is in, in amazingly detailed. Like, she would write journals and she would say, okay, here's when we're going to get water and here's how much we're going to do and then here's where we're going to buy food. And I was just kind of a pack mule along for the ride. So she was the planner and organizer. And, um, you know, I, I instead of that annoying me, I realized the benefits and appreciated it. And, um, you know, we kind of fell in love all over again. Came back to Breckenridge for the winter and then got married that summer. And then that summer we... Um, ended up we ended up leaving and moving to Sicily and working with a group called Young Life there for about three years which was a fantastic experience um, about how old were you at this point oh gosh I got married when I was 30 okay so yeah so right then and there and then we uh, we came back from Sicily my wife um, she was mathematics and computer science and she decided that she wanted to have more of a helpful role in people's lives and became, we were on a service project in Romania and um, it kind of changed her life. I think seeing kind of street kids and um, sort of the grim and dire circumstances that a lot of people live in. And so she came back and had to do a lot of hours just to apply to go to um, PA school. And so she got accepted with amazing the odds were against her in every way and she got accepted to PA school at Duke so she got her master's of health science and then um, at that point we ended up uh, right after she graduated we moved to Afghanistan with a group called Samaritan's Purse now Afghanistan what year was that? Dave I couldn't tell you that was it after <laughs> it was we invaded Afghanistan? yeah 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 it was okay. way after and yeah, I think because that, that makes a big difference I think the main thing I forgot to say is we, um, sorry, jumping back is before she went to school is we did a bike trip, uh, pedal bikes. And we, um, we flew out to go see some friends in, uh, Portland and her brother lived there and we rode around Portland for a little bit. And then we went to the San Juan islands and rode around there. And then we went to uh, Vancouver and then got up to Jasper and then rode the Icefields parkway down. And we came through whitefish and we both thought, Oh my gosh, it's, uh, it's a ski town, but it's not just, it's a town that has a ski resort. It's not just a ski town. It's not just a tourist town. It has other economic bases. Um, it's got an airport close by. It's got water. It's got a national park. You're close to the Canadian Rockies. It has a substantial town near it, if anything went south medically, that you could access pretty easily. And it kind of checked all the boxes. So that's when you found out that a lot of people do, that Montana, is not just people riding around on horses and there's actually like a cool place in Montana that you could live. Oh yeah, and you know, <laughs> we were so drawn to ski towns, like we knew we wanted to live in a town that had a ski resort. Um, so yeah, but it, I, I think, you know, a, a town that was at the time probably 5,000 that had a substantial uh, community. When we were in Breckenridge, I felt like you didn't see you know, grandkids and grandparents. I mean, it was that 25 to 35 year old male demographic that was, you know, just hitting it hard. And I thought this seemed like a really different town. It seemed like a community. So, so you had a glimpse of what Whitefish Montana was like. I do want to hear a little bit about 
Afghanistan. So you're in Afghanistan. What are you doing there? Well, I'm, I'm drilling wells. We did uh, 1,200 houses a year with hand tools. We'd get beams out of Russia and guys would draw a pencil line down it and they'd saw down it. And so we were, they were making their bricks for their buildings, but we were providing windows and doors and rafters. So, and, and were you there in the rebuilding after the yeah, war? Yeah, and you know, those were some of the most, those were probably the kindest, most generous people I've ever been around in my life as far as the things they would give you and just to show appreciation. And the fathers wanted schools for their kids. Uh, they wanted clothes on their kids' back. They wanted shelter and they wanted food. And they, they didn't have all these needs and the Taliban was really brutal to them. I mean, they ended up, you know, you couldn't have a picture of yourself on the wall. Your kids couldn't fly a kite. So, you know, they, they came through and tore all the power lines down, any infrastructure they had. So they were very, they were just really kind, sort of desperate people. But we, you know, the hugest impact we have is we'd go to a community and say, we'd talk to the leaders and say, hey, we, we can build 10 houses here this year. Who do you want them for? And so... It was beautiful that it, it everybody bought into it. You know, they everybody had ownership. It wasn't sort of, you know, coming in from the ivory tower and saying, "Here's what we're going to do, and here's who we're giving them to," and you have to accept that or you don't get them. So, um, and even you know, we gave away an enormous amount of just like Christmas gifts, um, small things in the community that made a big difference. If you care for people's kids, they you know they kind of care for you. And we also drilled wells. I went down to the very bottom, I think it was like a hundred and thirty or hundred and sixty foot hand dug well. Started out as six feet, no shoring whatsoever. They had written in Cyrillic all the way down and narrowed down to about three feet. It was in the middle of this town. So that was I think, you know, my wife said that water changes the community. Clean water makes all the difference. Uh, you know, we saw people in towns drinking out of troughs that animals were drinking out of and so um, yeah. So Afghanistan, then you got the tour, and you got a glimpse of whitefish. When did you make the move to whitefish? Like, how did that happen? Well, when we came back from Afghanistan, uh, I grew up, as I said, in this small town called Banneroke, North Carolina. And uh, we had a family Christmas tree farm. My father was into real estate and rental properties. And I had a small building business where we were building homes. And we um, kind of packed up the farm and said, we're done with the east. We're moving west, and we didn't have any uh, any prior relationships to whitefish. Didn't know anybody. We knew some people who had driven through, and we showed up in town. We had a, a nightly rental at a place until we could find like a monthly rental, and then we had the U-Haul for like I don't know an extra four days or five days, and just had bare essentials and moved into this monthly rental. And so, and in that time, we ended up looking for a house in town that we, we found one and made brownies and wrote a note and <laughs> they actually sold it to us. But, so you uh, just bought directly from the seller? Yeah, it, well, yeah. well, no, we actually used a real estate agent, which worked oh, out great. okay, but you found it that way. Yeah, and so what we ended up doing is uh, during that time for the summer, we didn't have, we weren't desperate to make money, so I ended up working for a lot of people for free in the Valley. and. I worked, I really enjoyed building. As I said, I worked in North Carolina and that, and I did some in Austria when I lived there and a little bit in Italy. And so I uh, ended up working for a bunch of people for free for probably two months or so. I'd come and say, hey, do you want me to, you know, I, I can do takeoffs, I can run materials, I can 
you know, put on my tool bag, whatever you want to do. You don't have to pay me, but I just want to see who you are. And we were in a building boom, so I knew I would have options. So this is pretty cool. So were you consciously thinking that if you did some work for free for people that later you were going to look for a job for one of these people, but you were trying them out as a potential employers or potential business partners? Oh, I guess I was interviewing them is what I felt like in that uh, I wanted to see what their crew said about them behind their back, how they ran things and, you know, how it, uh, just the ebb and flow of their daily business, see if they were respected. And part of I put together a spreadsheet. Have I said I love spreadsheets? <laughs> no, but that's a great idea. You know, your story is, is, is feels completely unique to you, but actually Jen and I, moved here under similar terms where we, we had a spreadsheet and we showed up, we didn't know anybody and we were checking boxes and we were figuring things <laughs> out. So I get a kick out of how many people do that and don't realize that a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. But <laughs> it's I a had, great way to do it. You know, like the things I mentioned before, but I had, you know, one of the things was if I stop in this town, like to try and cross a road at no crossing, does traffic stop? Are people friendly? Do they wave at you? You know, I had a lot of these sort of I guess esoteric things in there too, but part of my job spreadsheet, not my moving here spreadsheet, was you, you know, what do people say at the bar about this company, and what does the equipment rental say, you know, and what does the building supply say, and you know, asking the equipment rental, hey, are, are these guys do they pay their bills on time, you know, and I'd narrowed it down to five people, and then I said, hey, um, who's paying their bills on time, you know, who's asking for a deal, and. So, you know, there's a breakfast spot in town and there's, a, you know, kind of a nightlife spot in town. And so I would go by and talk to working class guys uh, to kind of get a broader, you know, view of who these people were. So, and the thing is, one of the reasons that I ended up working with MomQuest Construction when Casey was there is one of his tenants was, I don't ever want you to be here just to show FaceTime. Like, I don't want you in the office to be in the office. If your job's running well, I want you to be out playing. If you can do your job in 20 hours, great. I don't think you can, but if you can, like, I want you to be with your family and I want you to have fun and I want you to experience Montana. And that was very different than a lot of the other guys. Uh, which, which would be evidenced by the fact that now, I mean, how many years? I, I know that does, the path wasn't completely linear, but you've been related, or you've been somehow working with Malquist. For what, like 18 years now? Close, yeah. It'll yeah. be um, it'll be 17, yeah. And um, and and as I've noticed, just living here in the community, I mean, I mean, success is just going awesome at uh, Malquist right now. You yeah. know, like you guys are doing very well. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's um, this is going to sound corny. You can laugh at me after this, but it's the it's the products that we're producing. It's the people that work there. Uh, and the people that we work with, and then it's the processes that we have. I feel like, uh, and I coined those three P's. But, <laughs> the you know, three P's. Yeah, but that's the, you know, I, I think that's it. And we make mistakes, wonderful mistakes, but I think it's owning up to the mistakes and it's saying, hey, here's where we went wrong. Here are three ways to fix it. How would you like us to do that? I think it's, uh, I think having a, a accountability with people and having a, similar character with the people that you work with and you know beliefs in these things I think really makes a difference uh, you know I've had people I work with say 
hey, you didn't mean that. Like, why did you say that? And it's like, yeah, you're right. I, I really shouldn't have said that because I didn't mean that. And it's, you know, pretty superficial. So now I think your job kind of gets into why you plug well into the community. So real quick, what's your job title? Uh, it's a project. Court jester. Court jester. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good, you're like a project manager. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So real quick, like what's, What's kind of the day-to-day operation of the project manager? I have a vision in my head, but maybe just explain. Like somebody's building a, a $5 million house and yeah. it's high quality. There's a lot of different people involved. What's your job? Well, you know, if Lynn were to say, hey, what's your, what's, your, what's your day look like? I'll have a concept of what it looks like and know some things that I have to do, but I can never predict, you know, what it's going to be. And I think... As a company, we really like working on difficult projects, you know, complex projects that are on the lake that you have to work your way out of or up on the mountain. You guys um, did a, a nice a high value tree house. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. did three tree houses. Yeah. They're uh, the Snow Bear Ski Chalets that are amazing. Uh, they're right beside the slope and they're these tree houses and um, we've never done anything like it. And they've, I think it's the only project we've ever worked on that's been in Architectural Digest and in... Uh, Reader's Digest. <laughs> so what's the hardest part of your job? Um, well, I could probably tell you the things that I don't excel at, but it's, um, I think it's the amount of uh, time I'm on the phone or messaging or, you know, I, I told you. For I, you, because you'd rather be yeah, dealing directly face to face. Yeah, you know, I had, I think, 96 phone calls on Wednesday and... That's okay, and I always feel like it's better dealing with it at the immediate instead of pushing it down the road or waiting. Um, there, I think the the hard thing is is we're always building prototypes where you have this what this wealth of not hopefully this wealth of knowledge, you know, the space of knowledge, and you you've asked us, hey, I want to build a truck, but I want to use like a Ford axle, and I want to use a GMC motor, and I want to use these Dodge seats, and you know, I, I want to have a, you know, a Tesla hood. So we're always putting parts and pieces together of things we've done before, but we're never doing the exact same thing. So I think um, that's the challenge of it. But I think, too, is from what I've noticed, if you're not fully engaged with things, then some, it's not as enjoyable, it's not as much fun, and you're just, you're not doing as good a job. If there's some, I think, as you probably see in your business, like raw enthusiasm for mortgages, you know, like if you have raw enthusiasm, it's going to show and people are going to know it and you're going to be engaged and it makes a difference to people. Um, I really enjoy the sales aspect of our uh, job. I enjoy the day-to-day stuff. And I think the thing I'll say about Montana is we don't have a transient labor force. You know, our, our subcontractors are amazing men and, you know, our electrician will see he might see 30 houses in a year and I only see three or four. And you know, what he brings to the table is accountability for me. And also, Hey, well, we've done this before and the plumbers have done this and it's worked together really well. What do you think about that? And I I think what I've seen is, um, these guys have been on project to project and they're very accountable with their, uh, their, their numbers will shop people and make sure that, you know, we're still getting really good bargains and really deals, but they're fully invested. And I think that makes the biggest difference. If people are, have ownership, you know, if they're part of this, like that makes a difference to people. 
So, so Malquist Construction's got a, a great group of people. Is what you're saying? Culture's good there. Everybody's into the job, and so they're able to get excited about what they're doing every day. Yeah. You're part of that. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to highlight about you today was your community involvement because I'm not involved in uh, construction, but I, I know you really well, and I feel like uh, we spent a lot of time doing cool things together. And like for the audience of the podcast, like I remember uh, one time Bear sent me a text and it says we're having a downhill and meet at this time and and, and literally like 40 people show up on the summit of big mountain and they're all different people from different walks of life like we're not all hanging out on a regular basis and then we all ride our bikes down to bear's house you have a great community uh connection to a lot of people um what you lived here about 20 years what are some of the uh, to put you on the spot, I guess, what are some of the best community interactions that you've gotten to be part of? Because I think your job and your life, you have so many different life experiences that clearly it plays into why you are well-connected in the community. What have you seen in this community in Montana and Whitefish that you've been part of that, that have impressed you or things that you didn't like that you've been a part of? Hmm. Well, I, I think it's... Uh... It's an in- intentional community where they're trying to get changes inevitable here and it's growing at a rapid rate, but I think they're trying to make that change uh, go in the right direction. And I have an enormous amount of respect for you know, people that are in public service here. And that goes from our building inspectors to our mayor to you know, people that are positively trying to make a difference. And I think I might not agree with them on all the policies, and, uh, but I think that their intentions are always right. Their, uh, their intentions are to see Whitefish as a, you know, a greater and bigger community. And I really like, you know, the outdoor world and, and those things. I think our ski mountain is, is fabulous as far as, I wouldn't really, it's somewhere between Aspen and a mom and pop resort, but I think it's hit a really sweet spot in that they're part of the community and we're part of them. They appreciate us and we appreciate them, but you know, the events they do are, are family oriented. And I think the amount of uh, change in the past five years, these huge things that they've done have just expanded the resort and made it, you know, vi- financially viable uh, to our community and our town and to themselves too. So, you know, as far as things that are happening in the community, it's probably hard for me to pinpoint uh, one or two things kind of, you know, randomly thinking through. But um, I, I just think there's a lot of great community action on a ground level of people doing small things for people. You know what you're doing with the, you know, the tires. I mean, that's, it's a tangible, very simple thing that most people would overlook. And it's a safety for a family. It provides a necessity and it's a great thing to do. Uh, what Bear's talking about there is the tires for a change. Uh, the Glacier Skate Academy, if you want to look it up on Facebook, is uh, giving away free tires to families in need. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. And yeah, I think with uh, what I heard you say in a, in, a, in a little nugget of what you're describing there was you, because I, I was trying to see, uh, I, I've seen you many times involved in things where the community was kind of rallied around something. And I feel like you're one of those guys who can look over to the different sides of the aisle and say, I know this guy's got a good perspective and they care about whitefish and you can give them that assurance that people can talk together and get get somewhere with a goal. I've seen you do it before. 
Um, I think it comes probably from your job too, because in the construction management, you essentially do have all those things going on all the time. A lot of people with a lot of different things going on all trying to work together for a common goal. That one house you guys worked on, the the uh, six month multi million dollar house, yeah. was that crazy? Or? Yeah, it was a. Um, it was. It was. Uh, we had uh, a pretty unique group of people getting involved in it. You know, Tyler did a bunch of the the book work on it. The guy I work with on Tyler and the scheduling, and um, it had national recognition too. I think, and we knew that every day was. We had five cameras on site. And we had a big TV camera who was filming all the progress, and uh, it was, it was. I think they filmed about 500 hours, and they compressed it down to a 43-minute TV show. But uh, it was great recognition for us as a company that we finished on budget ahead of time, and um, we had accolades from the network and the people that worked there. And uh, it was, a, it was a great thing. But it was insane how many people were on the job. Uh, at one time, it was because it's not drill. just building the house; it's also a lot of people wanting to watch you build the house. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So it was a fun; it was a good experience for us as a company, for sure. Well, Bear, so I, I've known you for about twenty years, and what I I brought you on the show to just highlight an example of somebody who's moved to Montana, made it work in Montana. You've given us a lot of. Uh, illustration of some of the things that you've gone through both before and during I think a lot of nuggets for people who are thinking about establishing themselves uh, some good ideas um, but you're um, you still have a long road ahead of you so is there anything in the future for bear that that you're like oh this is coming up or is there something uh, what's next for bear I mean you've been doing a lot of great things. I mean Afghanistan it's a great job wife yeah you've got a kid that's uh, growing <laughs> yeah. up in montana yeah so what do you what do you see coming up down the road anything well or? my son is he's 14 now and i think this might be my last year of coaching soccer as he gets into high school sport um but i think we'll always uh consider whitefish our home as far as a staging point um if it's a springboard to some somewhere else we're not real sure but i tell you it's this sounds hokey but i one thing I really like about Whitefish is I, I feel like I know people and I'm known and I feel like I love people and I'm loved. And that's hard to give that up, you know, for a long term and ready to form that again. But in my opinion, there's no place like Montana as far as the natural beauty we have, um, the environment. There's so many great things and economically it's really solid. Um, a future, you know, I don't know. I've got some some uh, kind of harebrained ideas. I've kind of got a wanderlust, but nowhere we won't be moving anywhere until my uh, son gets out of high school. But then we'll be, we'll see. That makes total sense. I'm in the same boat. Well, Bear, it's been a pleasure. Just, I, you know, I've known you for 20 years, but just in sitting here for 30 minutes, I learned a few new things about you. So I hope people that already know you got a few nuggets of what makes Bear tick. And um, I appreciate everybody joining for making it work in Montana. If you have feedback for making it work in Montana, please share it on our Facebook page. We want to make this something that you want to listen to on a periodic basis. And we also just want to, um, if you have a guest that you feel like would be a great example of somebody making it in Montana, uh, we want to highlight them. So reach out. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to having you listen to us on the next episode of Making It Work in Montana. Woo! <laughs> See you later.
We're back with Bear and Bear wanted, we were talking after we got off the air and you wanted to mention um, something that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and then we just kind of let it go, but you have a conviction about it and, and some information about it. And so I mentioned that you're a community man that everybody knows and you're probably well known without being on social media. So explain Bear and social media because most people feel like, I mean, you have to be all over social media to exist in this world. You're taking the exact opposite approach. Why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, I've always told my wife that I'm really good at short, superficial, repetitive conversations. So that works well in town. <laughs> no, that would be great on social media. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, and I've, you know, I've intentionally not been a part of social media. Not that I'm opposed to it or I think it's wrong. It's just for me, I think it would be a, an enormous uh, time constraint. And it would be, you know, I have to manage a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts, and a lot of emails during the day. And I think it would be something else uh, that I would have to manage and I would feel like it. And I think part of it for me is, you know, I have friends that are on it and I think that's great and it's a really good way if I wanted to share something with a high school friend to kind of let him view my life from afar. But I think uh, for me and not for anybody else, I've just felt like it's a false representation of my life. It only shows the highlights and the good things and the glamorous pictures in the park and skiing and, you know, mountain biking in the fall. And, you know, I really feel like I would much rather have an in-depth conversation with you than I would, you know, see that. And, and it's interesting because I know, I think social media really does spur on some conversations, but I've found on occasion it really cuts conversations off when I say, hey Dave, well, you know, we were just in the park and we skied this peak and we biked up there and then we hiked and we saw these grizzly tracks and you know, your first response is, oh yeah, yeah, I saw those pictures. And unfortunately to me, and it's probably childlike, is that I feel like that cuts off things instead of, you know, like reading a book, there's an, a sense of imagination that you have to use. But yeah, pictures are so fulfilling visually to see those pictures and do those things. But just with my personality, I would rather not have my life kind of broadcast in that sense. Well, and it, like I say, I've known you for 20 years, and, and one thing about you is you're incredibly engaging. Like, I know that you care, and I think part of that comes from the, the real relationship part that's not on social media. It's like, it's not about broadcasting something. It's just about, how are you doing, Dave? You know, and, and seeing if you can cut through all that. And, you know, it's funny because, uh, I mean, I'm all over social media, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like, any advertising is good advertising or any exposure is good exposure when it comes to drawing an audience. But I did have an experience just like what you were talking about where I posted a picture of uh, my daughter and wife and I up in Canada and we look absolutely perfect and I wrote in the comments uh, just 10 minutes before this photo was taken we were in a big fight. <laughs> because if I didn't say that I felt actually dishonest about posting it because we were hiking up the mountain, we were all arguing about something, and I was like, we gotta get a great picture up here. Got the great picture, it looks great, and I posted it, I'm like, this is not honest. <laughs> we were in an argument, so I just put that there, and a lot of people thought it was funny, because um, social media doesn't give you that, it only gives you what you're showing, you know? So. Yeah, and 
you know, I don't know that it's fear or insecurity or any of those things the way a lot of things have been labeled, but you know, having a, a 14 year old son too, I'm really conscious of what effect does social media have on him as far as acceptance and, you know, forming real relationships. And, you know, if, if, if you hurt my feelings, I would say, Dave, you really hurt my feelings instead of it being this, you know, I'm not really looking at your face moving and I'm on this screen and it's much easier. It's much, it's a much softer contact. And, you know, like another thing too is I built a house for a guy, very, very successful man in Whitefish. And, you know, one of the things he said in my boardroom, like, I really want people to argue with me. I don't want yes men. He said, at the end of the day, it's kind of a dictatorship. But he said, I want people to convince me I'm a fool. And, you know, I, I want to have that engagement. I don't want people just saying yes, yes, yes along the way. And I think I really, you know, a portion of my job is confrontation as far as holding people accountable, them holding me accountable. You know, um, I feel like I've really got to be the advocate of the homeowner. And I've also got to be the advocate of the sub so that nobody's getting abused in this relationship. And it's a complicated thing. And it's kind of a, a fine dance if I can't step back. And I don't know, and probably some of it's privacy too. I, I really like having, uh, I think, sacred things you know, or I'll go into the park and, and not even take a picture and just hopefully savoring it. But maybe that's a little too esoteric or too, I don't know. It's just my personality. It's awesome. It's, it's good that you're sticking by your convictions and that you're honest. And uh, I'm really glad that you shared it because I think it's something that is countercultural today. And probably a lot of us need to really reflect on that and think about the bare perspective so I really appreciate you giving it so yeah one last thing I'll say is too uh, somebody spoke at the middle school as far as middle school you know how social media affects middle school middle school people and other things and it was really good for me like when I'm driving because I drive into town and my son comes to my office and then he walks to school which is a block and a half away or two blocks and you know the great thing is is it's really easy to try and start up y'all typically get calls not before seven o'clock, but right around seven o'clock, they'll start coming in. And for me, it's like, I, I gotta make things sacred in my life or untouchable. Like when I'm riding to school with my son, like I don't have much longer of that. And why am I on the phone or why am I dealing with these things that I can wait 15 minutes with? It doesn't change anything. And just be patient and make him realize how important he is to me. Conceptually, he's been important, but how does that practically work out? You know, like not having a phone in my bedroom and not not letting him have that and you know having those things quarantined or using them as a tool and not letting them dominate which is tough it is tough it's everywhere so it really requires conviction yeah well thanks for sharing that yeah. bear awesome nugget you <laughs>